Now I'd like you to turn with me please to the prophecy of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's prophecy, it's one of the, I think, the easier books to find in the Old Testament. If you find Isaiah and Jeremiah, then a little book of Lamentations, and then you come to Ezekiel. And we're moving on uh, fairly far on in Ezekiel. It's chapter 37, which I venture to suggest is probably the best-known chapter in the prophecy. So Ezekiel chapter 37. Let us hear God's word. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it, Ephraim's stick, belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. When your countrymen ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick, making them a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on, and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. 
I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. So reads the word of God. I have an interest in visiting cemeteries and reading epitaphs on headstones. If my daughter were here this morning, she would tell you that that is confirmation, that I am a very sad individual. But I want to point out in my defense that I don't do this very often. So you won't find me every weekend, for example, in a cemetery. But when I get the chance, I like to do that. And uh, I usually only do it on holiday. So it was in 2008 when we were in France on a camping holiday. I visited a number of war cemeteries in northern France and one in Belgium where my great uncle Henry is buried who was killed at the Battle of the Somme. Now you didn't think I was that age. The sheer scale of some of these war cemeteries is stupendous. As you enter the cemetery you see Rows and rows of headstones and crosses in some instances, meticulously preserved by the War Graves Commission. It's something like that that the prophet Ezekiel saw in this book, chapter 37, except that the bones he witnessed as the Lord brought him to this cemetery in the valley, the bones that he witnessed were not neatly interred, but rather scattered over the surface. Some great catastrophe had occurred in which a multitude had been wiped out. Now, that's the vision that we are confronted with in this chapter this morning. And our task today, and uh, as I began to think about this task during the week, I thought it was rather a difficult task, Our task is to try and unravel how this chapter fits in the storyline of the Bible. And, of course, what is its relevance, its application to us in our situation today. Now, from the outset, we need to recognize that Ezekiel is a big book and a tough book. Augustine of famed church history is reported to have said that there are are many shallows in the Bible in which a lamb may wade. Similarly, he said, there are also depths in which an elephant may swim. 
And I suggest that Ezekiel then is clearly for elephants. This book of 48 chapters is little known by Christians today, except perhaps by those who have more than a passing interest in speculative prophecy. Nevertheless, one fascinating statistic occurs in Ezekiel, which it seems to me gives us some direction as to how we ought to understand it. Of the 359 occurrences of the phrase, this is what the Sovereign Lord says in the Old Testament. One third of them are found in this book. So you will find that particular phrase occurring again and again, 359 times in the Old Testament. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. One third of them are found in the book of Ezekiel. And I suggest then that Ezekiel is quite self-consciously a message from God. God is speaking. God is saying something to people in Ezekiel's generation and also speaking, saying something to us in our generation today. As a a less well-known hymn puts it, God has spoken by the prophets, spoken the unchanging word, each from age to age proclaiming, God the one, the righteous Lord. Now Ezekiel was born a year or so before the book of the law was discovered in the temple as part of the reforms under King Josiah. The year was 622 B.C. A little bit hard to get your mind around that. I always uh, struggle a little bit when people start talking about uh, 300, 400, 500 B.C. My, my mind doesn't work in that way very well. It tends to work more in terms of A.D., and I'm sure you're with me on that. But here's a man who lived all those centuries ago. He had probably heard the preaching of Jeremiah. He may have known the ministries of Habakkuk and Zephaniah. And what this tells us is that he grew up in a period of incredible political instability. The power of Assyria was on the decline. And the power of Babylon on the one hand and Egypt on the other was on the increase. In 603 BC, Nebuchadnezzar deported many of Judah's leading men into exile, including Daniel. And then there was a rebellion under a a king called Jehoiakim, 597 BC. And he was defeated, and after that rebellion, another deportation took place. And this time, Ezekiel, this young man, was taken into exile. It was the start of a period of 27 years of prophetic ministry, faithful ministry in a foreign land. Chris Wright says of the people of God at this time, they were physically dislocated, psychologically traumatized, and theologically baffled. That's a wonderful comment. They were physically dislocated, taken from their own land to a foreign country. They were psychologically traumatized because they'd been taken into slavery, basically. But most significant of all, perhaps, they were theologically baffled. Because they couldn't for a moment work out what God was trying to do in this situation. What is the Lord doing? I'm sure they asked that question time and time again. Maybe it's a question that you've asked. Maybe somebody here in the congregation this morning. That's a question that's pressing on your mind at the moment. You're saying, what is God doing in my life at this time? 
Well, I hope that as we we look at this chapter together, that at least some good principles will be elucidated from this chapter. Now, into this set of circumstances then, where the people of God were all of those things, God sent the prophet Ezekiel to engage in a ministry that was both strange and yet dramatically powerful. Ezekiel's behavior was, let's be honest, bizarre. I I don't know whether you've read the prophecy of Ezekiel. It's a Uh, Maybe something that you'd be tempted to do after this this morning, I hope. Uh, And as you read through these 48 chapters, you, you encounter the prophet doing all kinds of very strange things. For example, for long periods he would lie motionless. What do you say? That's not unusual. I've got teenagers in my family and, uh, well, I better not go there. But he, he lay motionless for long periods of time. What about this one? He used human excrement as fuel. You're saying, oh, what's going on? Why, why is he engaging in this bizarre behavior? But it was not as some have suggested in some of the more radical commentaries an indicator that he was mentally ill. It was simply that the prophet was using symbolic action to identify with and highlight the state of the people among whom he was ministering. This use of props and uh, and drama and symbolic action was, you may know, a characteristic of a great deal of Old Testament prophecy. Here then is a prophet who is called by God. He's given a task by God. He he saw a vision. The vision he received is recounted in chapter 1, a vision of the awesome glory of God. He heard a voice. Now, the voice that came to Ezekiel is slightly different in terms of what it was requiring to the voice that came to Isaiah, for example. Uh, In Isaiah, the question is for, uh, if you like, a request for volunteers. Whom shall we send and who will go for us is the word that comes to Isaiah. But not so with Ezekiel. Here there is a simple command. There, There is no possibility for volunteerism with Ezekiel. He's simply told to go and do something. And what was he told to do? Well, he received a commission. The commission was to be a watchman over the people of God. And the account of that is in chapter 3. So this prophet is someone who receives a vision, he hears the voice, and he receives a commission. Now that brings us then, by way of very brief summary, to our chapter this morning. And I want to identify the message of Ezekiel chapter 37 with the aid of two statements, both of which are about God, because the storyline of the Bible, you've maybe begun to discover this, I'm sure you have already in your E100 series. The storyline of the Bible is a story about God and the people. It's a story about God and the people. And here are two lessons about the God who is in relationship with his people. The first is this. The reputation of God must not be maligned. That's the first statement. The reputation of God must not be maligned. This applies, I want to emphasize, to history and to church history. Now, as we look around us today, and especially with the events of the past week, we might imagine that all of life is moving according to its own agenda. And so we feel that the 
not only the financial markets are, are up and down like a roller coaster, but life generally out there moves according to its own agenda. And maybe we imagine that our lives personally do exactly the same. We make plans. Sometimes they come to work out and sometimes they don't. But we make plans and we execute them. But in fact, the prophecy of Ezekiel tells us today that it is the sovereign will of God which is the key force at work. And the reputation of God that is the chief consideration. Let me say that again. It is the sovereign will of God that is the key force at work and it is the reputation of God that should be the chief consideration. You see, the point here at the beginning of Ezekiel chapter 37 can be framed in the form of a question. And the question is this. If Judah is in exile, how will the nations know that Yahweh is indeed the Lord? That's the question that sets the context for Ezekiel 37. If the people of God are actually in exile, they're not in the land that God promised them. Something really bad has happened to them. Chris Wright says... Theologically baffled, psychologically traumatized, physically dislocated. If all of that has happened to them, then what are they saying about this God? What what are we to conclude about this God that they purport to worship? He's weak. He's powerless. He's not able to look after them. They might draw those conclusions. And so what does the Lord do in that context? Well, he takes the prophet Ezekiel and he whisks him off to the valley. Now, Ezekiel had been in the valley before, chapter 37. He'd been in the valley, for example, in chapter 3. On that occasion, he saw a vision of the awesome glory of God. And afterwards, he was unable to speak for a lengthy period of time. But this time in the valley, he sees something different. It's a picture of death and decay. The valley is strewn with bones. The bones have been picked clean by the birds. They have been bleached white by the sun. They are, the prophet says, (coughs) very dry, indicating that they'd been there for a long time. Now, as you read the commentaries on this, you, you find that the discussion that takes place there is really quite pointless because, uh, in some instances, because you discover that there is lengthy discussion about the uncleanness of the location so far as Jewish regulation is concerned. And after about three pages of that, I have to tell you, I got bored and just closed the commentary because I thought that's missing the point. It's not really to do with cleanness, uncleanness, Jewish regulations or otherwise. The main point is, this is as dead as you can get. That's the point. Now, you might want to add, I'm not sure, but you might want to add the notion of curse to the bones, in that to be deprived of burial in the ancient Near East was the ultimate degradation. So the conclusion then is dead and under a curse, if you want to add that. That's the point. So, in that situation of apparent hopelessness, what does God say? Well, he addresses the prophet and he asks him a question. The question is this, son of man, can these bones live? What a question. The answer surely is self-evident. Bones that are strewn on the surface, picked by the birds, bleached by the sun, there for a long time, very dry, there is no chance of these bones living. But Ezekiel's answer is non-committal. 
He's a shrewd operator, isn't he? He says, I'm not sure, but I think you might know the answer, Lord. He sits on the fence. There's a sit on the fence answer if ever I heard one. The prophet, you see, has the knowledge not to deny the power of God. But I tentatively suggest he doesn't have the faith to actually believe in the power of God. He knows that God is all-powerful. He's learned this. He, he recognizes you. Just read through the previous chapters. He, he begins to get an impression of who God is. But his faith is weak at this point because he's looking at these bones and he's saying, this is impossible. So he pushes the question away. But interesting, as you read on, he's not off the hook because the Lord says to him, well, okay, but I want you to do something. You are to prophesy to these bones. You are to command them to live Chris Wright says, you may think I'm referring a lot to Chris Wright. I I do want to commend his commentary, Bible Speaks Today series on Ezekiel. It is the best thing you will ever pick up on this prophecy. Well, maybe someone will write something in a few years' time. But at the moment, that is the best thing that you can pick up on Ezekiel. Chris Wright says this, it is one thing to preach to the deaf, but something else entirely to preach to bones. Agreed? Difficult to preach to the deaf. But to preach to bones, that's absolutely futile. Nevertheless, Ezekiel hears the word of the Lord and obeys, and a miracle of reconstruction takes place before his eyes. He says, as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. The bones began to attach themselves to one another in the correct skeletal order, followed by sinews and muscles and finally skin. Now what have you got? You've got a whole range of corpses. You say, this is a horrible picture, isn't it, for a a Sunday morning on the 7th of August? But that's what Ezekiel saw. He's got a, a, a range of corpses, but... And you, you can almost sense the, the disappointment in the text here in his voice. He says, but there was no breath in them. Only God could do that. Only God could bring resurrection out of rigor mortis. You will notice the double emphasis here that is clearly portrayed in the text of word and spirit. Ezekiel prophesies and the spirit breathes new life. In other words, word and spirit belong together. They work together. Word and wind, same word. Word and breath, same word as spirit. The whole passage is full of the activity of the spirit of God to bring life out of death. And this great company, the word that is used in verse 10 in the NIV is army, but It doesn't actually suggest an army. The original word simply means a great assembly of people. This great assembly of people comes to life. Now at this point, I want to cast your mind mind back to an allusion uh, in the earlier Old Testament in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. Because it seems to me we are meant to think of the original creation at this point. You remember that two-stage creation of humanity, how mankind is fashioned out of the dust of the ground. And then, second stage, God breathes into his nostrils, Genesis says, the breath of life and he becomes a living being. The revival of Israel then will be nothing less than the recreation of humanity. Nothing less. 
And in verse 14, God provides the interpretation. Now, this is so helpful because sometimes we're kind of left a little bit to our own devices. But here in Ezekiel 37, it's great because God himself gives the interpretation. And he says, these bones, verse 11, are the whole house of Israel. Note, the whole house of Israel. So, the nation is dead. The nation is in exile. No cultic service, no temple choirs, nothing left. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. But God can and does make them live. And so Ezekiel is encouraged. And he preaches to the exiles in verses 12 to 14, the message of resurrection and restoration. Notice that here from verse 12 onwards, the imagery changes slightly from scattered bones over the floor of the valley to graves, which the Lord opens, and a land to which he brings them back. What a message of hope and confidence for a people in exile. Despite their waywardness, God has not forgotten his people. He has promised to bring them back to their land and give them hope and a future. Notice the last phrase of verse 14. This is the the point that I want to emphasize particularly. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. You see, that's the primary consideration. If you go away this morning remembering nothing else from this chapter, remember verse 14. This is so that they will know that the Lord has spoken and he has done it. In other words, God's reputation will not be maligned. It will always be maintained. The good name of God will not be called into question either by those who are his enemies nor indeed by the negative, apparently negative events of history and time. But you say, Israel is in exile. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. God's name will still be honored in all the earth. So what does that mean for us? Okay, we're thinking about way back to the 500s BC, and it seemed to have bear some kind of relationship to their lives then because they were clearly in exile. But what does it mean for us today? Well... Whenever events confound and perplex us, international events, I I tell you, I'm absolutely perplexed when I hear Robert Peston on the BBC. I think, what what does this all mean? I'm absolutely naive economically in some ways. And I I say, what's the answer to this? I'm perplexed by it. National events. We're now living how many years after the instigation of the peace process. And as I look at the events of this summer in Northern Ireland, I have to say, I'm not sure we've come all that far in many respects. I'm perplexed by it. I think about my own life domestically, personally. And I I, I think about our parents now. And we've entered a very different phase of relationship with mum and dad, uh, my mum and my wife's mum and dad. We've entered a very different kind of phase now. My wife's mum and dad are now in residential care. My mum is beginning to ill physically. And I'm perplexed by this. I'm saying, what what is the, the right way to relate to this? 
Now, that's just an example from my life, but around this congregation this morning, there are loads of examples, and, and you will immediately be mentally ticking a box or writing something on the blank sheet of paper that, that is the issue that is perplexing you personally at the moment. Well, how do we make sense of these things? One thing is absolutely sure. In all of it, the reputation of God will be maintained. His reputation is the chief consideration. He must be worshipped and honoured. No matter what happens internationally, nationally, personally, he must be worshipped in all of life. Henry Martin was a, a missionary to Iran in the 19th century, and he said on one occasion, I could not endure existence if Jesus were not glorified. What a statement. I could not endure existence if Jesus were not glorified. The implications of this for us as Christians are surely profound. It means that we should promote the honor of God in all of life. Now, if you're like me, you tend to divide life into two compartments, mainly. The sacred and the secular. So you see, I've got this little part of my life, and, and it's the, the sacred bit. Now, I'm overstating the case for emphasis' sake, but I, I've got this little part of my life that's the sacred bit. It's the bit I do on Sunday, all right? And uh, that has certain features. It's the spiritual exercises in which I engage. That's the sacred bit. And then there's the other bit of life, and that's the secular bit, and that's the Monday to Saturday life. So I do stuff at home and at work or on the golf course. In my case, I gave that up some time ago. uh, But whatever your secular interest is, uh, your leisure interest is. And so we've got these compartments. Sacred bit, that's now. And then the secular bit. And the two don't seem to merge. They, They never seem to make a point of contact with one another. But what Ezekiel 37 is saying to me this morning is this, all of life must be cohesive. God's name is to be honored in the public and in the private sphere. God's reputation must not be maligned because of me as an individual or because of us as a church. That's the chief consideration. So here's the first thing. The reputation of God must not be maligned. True in Ezekiel's day and true for us today in the 21st century. And then there's a second thing, rather more briefly. The purpose of God cannot be frustrated. That's the the second main emphasis that Ezekiel brings out in chapter 37. The purpose of God cannot be frustrated. From verse 15 to the end of the chapter, a further command is given to Ezekiel, which represents the ultimate intention of God for his people. His purpose is what? To reunite them and to settle them in the land that he had promised to give them in peace. In other words, the immediate message for Israel in the 500s BC is actually the current message for the church in 2011 AD. Resurrection for Israel means resurrection for all who believe in Israel's God. Resurrection for Israel means resurrection for all who believe in Israel's God. 
And from verse 15 to the end of the chapter, we learn that if God is able to reverse division, he is also able to, if God is able to reverse death, he is also able to reverse division. Those two things. Now here the prophet Ezekiel takes two pieces of wood and he uses them as a powerful visual aid. The NIV translates this, you will notice, two sticks. Other translations are possible, for example, two scepters. Chris Wright favors two wooden writing tablets. Uh, I don't really mind which you prefer. To be honest, I'm not sure which is right, but it doesn't really matter which you take. Sticks, scepters, wooden writing tablets. The idea is that whichever they are, you bring together two independent items and you join them and make them one. That's the point. So in the case of sticks, what would you be doing? You'd be splicing them. Is that the correct term? Don't ask me how that's done, but it's bringing two sticks together to make them one. In the case of writing tablets, if you want to go down that road, you bring these wooden writing tablets together and you glue them so that they become one. Now, you'll know, I'm sure, that the nation had been divided since the time of Rehoboam into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. From the point of view of these exiles in Ezekiel's day, it had happened so long ago, something like 500 years before that, it had happened so long ago that this was a state of affairs they now got used to. But God is saying through his prophet that that political division which seemed to be set in stone would never destroy his purpose of one covenant people. Now, in the original Hebrew language, the emphasis on oneness comes across very powerfully in this chapter. So, for example, verse 17 can be translated literally like this. Combine them one to one into one wood so that they may become one in your hand. Now, it doesn't read very well in the English, but the word one is the one that resonates or makes an impact on the ear as you listen to it. Combine them one to one in one wood so that they'll become one in your hand. And someone speaking Hebrew would have heard that very clearly. In other words, God's going to do something about their division. He'll create one nation, verse 22, under one king who will rule as one shepherd, verse 24. And then verse 28 brings us back to the key point again. The nations will know the truth about who God is and what he has done. So here is the God of heaven, the God of his people, the God of history, the God of the past, the present, and the future, bringing life out of death and unity out of division. Here is restoration and hope in the midst of brokenness and despair. 500 years have passed since the nation was one, but that was like a moment in the mind and purpose of God. All the intervening years of backsliding and ultimately exile could not frustrate the divine purpose. And now, announced in Ezekiel, there is a statement of breathtaking clarity that God's clock is still ticking. God's plan is still working. God's victory is still certain. Now, I love the final note of chapter 37 from verse 24 onwards. From verse 24 to the end, I am reminded of the claim of Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 10. Remember what Jesus said? I am the good shepherd, the one who knows his sheep, and whose sheep know him, 
who lays down his life for them. And you remember, no doubt, that in that passage in John, Jesus says, I have other sheep who are not of this sheepfold. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one shepherd and one flock. So what's going on here in Ezekiel 37 at this point? He's prophesying with relevance, striking relevance into his own context, but he's saying far more than he realized. Because the fulfillment of his words would only be truly seen in the coming of the one who is the king and shepherd Israel never had. Now the implications of that for our thinking about God and his people and the world are absolutely radical. This means that right at the center of everything, we see Jesus Christ, center of everything. Whenever I go to preach on Sunday mornings, I usually listen to Sunday sequence, and this morning was no exception. Miroslav Wolf has uh, written a book recently on how you can basically be a Muslim and a Christian, with no contradiction between the two, and and, uh, William Crawley was interviewing him this morning. Fascinating. Do you know that in the whole interview, I suppose it lasted for most of ten minutes, The name of Jesus Christ was never mentioned in the whole interview. And I thought, well, they're missing the main point. Because when Jesus Christ is mentioned, he brooks no peers, no rivals. He is at the center of the biblical revelation. Now, this is the point of Ezekiel 37 and of the whole storyline of Scripture. Wright says, the most significant echo of Ezekiel 37 comes in a locked room on the very evening of the resurrection. When we read these words, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's the most significant echo of Ezekiel 37. Here is Jesus, risen from the dead, commanding the breath of God to come upon the gathered disciples. In him All the centuries of Old Testament expectation are finally realized. Now, following the resurrection, there will truly be one shepherd and one people, Jews and Gentiles, brought together in the church, the body of Christ. And that breath of God that brought life to dry bones in Ezekiel's vision and brought life to the dead Messiah is the same power that is available to the ends of the earth today to bring life and salvation and the assurance of resurrection on the last day to all who will believe in the Savior. You see, the purpose of God cannot be frustrated. We're nearly finished. But let me tell you about Oswald Smith. The year was 1920. The scene was an examination board for the selection of missionaries. Standing before the board was a young man named Oswald Smith. One dream dominated his heart. He longed to be a missionary. He had often prayed the prayer, Lord, open a door of service for me to go overseas to bring the good news of Jesus. Now at last he was sure his prayer would be answered. When the examination was over, he went out and sat outside, and then they brought him in to inform him that he did not meet their qualifications, and they could see no future for him in the mission field. He was devastated. 
He felt that he had been called, that he'd built himself up to this for years, and now suddenly it seemed as if the carpet had been pulled from under his feet. In subsequent days, weeks, and months, as he prayed, God planted another idea in his heart. If he could not go as a missionary, he could build a church that would send out missionaries. And under God, that's exactly what he did. Oswald Smith pastored the People's Church in Toronto, Canada, which in that decade sent out many more missionaries than any other church at the time. God had another plan. His purpose was not frustrated. Now, I want to say it's hard for us to see that at the time. Disappointment can be very difficult to deal with. I mentioned earlier making a hash of those A-levels, drastic dreaded exams that they were. And when those results are received and they're not what you thought they were going to be, you say, that's the end of my world. Well, I thought that at the time. Maybe you're not so radically impacted by something like that. But I thought, that's the end of things. Now I'm useless. That idea filled my mind. God had a different plan. Well, you say it's easy in reflection. Yes, I know. It is easier in reflection, in hindsight. But what we need to learn from Ezekiel today, from the experience of someone like Oswald Smith, is that God's purpose is never frustrated. True in the big picture. And true in the small events of our lives. Here then is a message of life this morning. A message of unity. A message of peace. It finds its author in God whose reputation must not be maligned and whose purpose cannot be frustrated. This is the word of Ezekiel as he takes his place in the big story. The revelation of God to us of a dramatic rescue plan that finds its center in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for Ezekiel. We don't know him very well, but we realize as we read that he was clearly in touch with you and your mind and purpose. We think of some of his activities, we find them bizarre. And yet we realize that you were using him to speak very clearly and with power into his situation. And as we think about our context today in the 21st century, we pray that you'd help us by your word and the spirit to live our lives in such a way in our context that we might be more authentically the people of God in our generation. Help us to apply your word by your spirit and to take away today something that will impact the way we live and think, not only this day, but tomorrow as we go to our places of work. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.